you have your Bibles this morning, and I trust that you do, if you can open with me to Romans chapter 14. Romans chapter 14. Welcome to week 31 of our series in the book of Romans, and I pray that this series, um, I know it's been deep, but I also pray that it's been beneficial to us as the body of Christ. And last week we talked about the freedom that we have in Christ and our calling to welcome brothers and sisters, so open arms to brothers and sisters, not judging them. As we said last week, there is a judge and it's not us while understanding the difference between essential and non-essential beliefs and and doctrines. I laid out about a list of 29 different debatable matters that Christians have fought over throughout the years, and some Christians continue to fight over um, those debatable matters. And after thinking about it more this week, I want to add some additional items to the list. In case I didn't offend you last week, I wanted to make sure I offended everybody So I wanted to make sure you were added to the list. So here are some additional items that Christians either have fought over or continue to fight over that we did not get to last week. Um, One being tattoos. Now, it's not as bad as it used to be, but there are some that I've, I've heard terrible stories of people who've walked in church with tattoos and people have made them to feel like they are somehow inferior or how dare you or or different things and I pray that that would never ever ever happen here um, because of stigma or because of what grandparents or great-grandparents have taught or believed. Second, playing cards. You know, I had somebody come up to me from the first service last week and said, you didn't mention playing cards. We were made to feel so guilty when I grew up about playing cards. Like every time I said, go fish, I thought I was going to hell. You know, I mean, and I heard a story, Dwight L. Moody, I, I, amazing hero of mine, the great evangelist, he found some buddies of his playing cards before one of his evangelistic crusades, and he went straight Jesus and turned the playing card table over and ran them out. Because they were playing cards. A third thing that Christians fight over is what to wear to church. I've heard stories of deacons who have stood outside of churches and when someone walks up not wearing a suit and tie and not wearing a long dress, they have told those people, you don't belong here. You'll never fit in here. Let me just say this. If you have that attitude where you look at the outside of people, then you don't belong here. So just make that very, very clear. And then, of course, Halloween and thoughts on Halloween and viewing this as a pagan festival, a day of darkness and demons. I would never let my kid participate in trick-or-treat because we worship Jesus, not Baltimore. You know, we worship Jesus and not vampires. I would never, ever allow my kid to do that. I'm like, well, I just like candy. And if it's free, I like it even better. So, I mean, you have these thoughts, and don't even get me started on masks and vaccines and how those things have divided many within the church. And the point is this. There are literally hundreds of things that many believers are happy to fight about. Just ask for our opinion or give us what we think is your opinion, and we're ready to go to war. And that's all it takes is for us to think you're giving our opinion and us not to agree with it. And we are ready to go to war. This week, I read an article by Tom Rainer. He is the former CEO of Lifeway Christian Resources. And now he is the CEO of what's called Church Answers. But he wrote an article entitled 25 Silly Things That Church Members Fight Over. 
It started with a tweet that Rainer sent out asking for people to give stories about battles within the church. And what he found out really quick was there were church members and church leaders that were more than eager to share about fights and battles that have taken place in churches that they were a part of. I'm not going to go through all 25, but let me just give you a few stories. First is of a deacon that accused another deacon of sending an anonymous letter to him, and they both decided to settle the, the matter in the parking lot. The only thing that would be worse than that is if the other deacons charged admission to see the fight. A second would be a fight over which picture of Jesus to put in the church foyer. Huge fight, almost split the church over what picture of Jesus to put in the foyer. Now, here's my thing. Unless you took the picture, then it doesn't matter. Just think about that. Then number three, a big church argument. This is fantastic. Over the discovery that the church budget was off by 10 cents. After over an hour and a half of arguing at a church business meeting, someone finally gave a dime to settle the issue. That had to be a Baptist church. It had to be. Number four, a dispute in the church because the Lord's Supper had cran grape juice instead of grape juice. Now, we all know that Hezekiah 4.13 says it must be Welch's grape juice. I mean, we, we know that, therefore we hold to that. Number five, and this is fantastic, an actual argument in the church on whether the church should allow people to bring deviled eggs to the fellowship dinner. I think, thankfully, if it's balanced out with angel food cake, it should be okay. Number six, some church members left the church because one church member hid the vacuum cleaner from them. It resulted in half the church leaving. Thus, the Second Baptist Church of Dirt Devil was formed. And then lastly, and I cannot wrap my head around this one, just follow with me here, a church dispute of whether or not to install restroom stall dividers in the women's restroom. Now, there's so many questions I have that I'm just not going to go there because we're in church. But here's the point. These, some of you are like, what? Yeah, exactly. I don't even want to know. There are so many silly, crazy things that we are, if we're not careful, happy to fight about. And the problem is these silly and even stupid things become great distractions to us actually fulfilling the great commandment and the great commission. So there are so many things that become great distractions to us fulfilling the great commandment to love God with all of our heart, souls, mind, and strength, and the great commission to go and make disciples of all nations. Ultimately, we don't have to look far to find divisions in the American church. And these divisions are causing people to abandon the church altogether. A recent Gallup poll reported that U.S. church membership fell below 50% for the first time in eight decades. I just can't help but wonder, is maybe because the world around us is seeing us fighting over silly and stupid stuff that they don't want to be a part of what we are about. And maybe if we were about what we're supposed to be about as the church, then more people would say, I need that. I mean, I think most people, if they come from dysfunction, they're not going to say, I need the dysfunction of the church. No, they need a church that points them to Jesus. So I want us to turn today, and I want us to see that Paul kind of continues on the argument that he has from last week. And he's going to take us past that 
to some pictures of understanding our own freedoms and even the call to give up those freedoms for the sake of weaker brothers and sisters. So if you're able, I'm going to ask you to stand as we honor God's word. We're going to begin in verse 13. The verses will also be on the screen. And Paul says this, Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer. So Paul says, stop it. Just stop it. But rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it unclean. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. But what you eat do not destroy, or by what you eat, do not destroy the one from whom Christ died. So do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Do not, for the sake of food, destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean, but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. It is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. The faith that you have keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. But whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats because the eating is not from faith. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. Let's pray. Father, we just come to you, Lord, during this another difficult text, just praying that you would give us humility, Lord, give us clarity. Holy Spirit, just illuminate truth to us and that we would walk in it, and that we would value love for our brothers and sisters over anything else, over our own freedoms and things that we value or things that we view as important. Lord, just speak, oh God, just move in our midst. In Jesus' name, amen. And you may be seated. So the story told, after a heavy snowfall, a father offered his son the chance to earn a few extra bucks by shoveling a path from the front door down the walkway all the way to the street. So the son, of course, ever eager to have a little extra cash, went and put on his boots, put on his coat, Put on his gloves, grabbed the shovel, and got to work. I mean, he just started shoveling everything. He never even put his head up. He just kept his head down from the door, the walkway, all the way to the street. And finally, once he got to the street, he looked back, and he was so proud, and he was so happy of what he had done. His dad came out and said, let's go in and grab some, some cocoa, and I'll pay you um, for the amazing job that you did. And as they were walking back in, they heard a voice from the neighbor that said, then will you come and clear away the extra snow you put on my path? And so they looked over, and of course, as the son was so eager to get the snow off of his path, he had literally filled the neighbor's yard and the neighbor's path with snow. And what Paul's concern here is in Romans 14 is that we can so be about clearing our own path that we don't even notice that we are causing stumbling blocks in the paths of other people. That we can all be about, if we're not careful, just upholding our freedoms, rejoicing in our freedoms, caring about no one but ourselves, realizing, not even realizing, that we are causing other people to stumble in their faith. We must be careful. We must understand and hear the call 
of love. So that's what we're going to lay before us today, four great callings of love in our lives. Four great callings of, of love that Paul is placing before us even today. First is this, protect one another from stumbling. Protect one another from stumbling. Paul says in verse 13, Therefore let us not pass judgment on one another any longer. Again, Paul says stop doing that, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or a hindrance in the way of a brother. So we need to set our lives on a path that won't grieve other people, that won't make other people falter because of their consciences. That means we need to be close enough to people to know where they are. We need to be close enough to know what's on the hearts of people, to know what things are, are hindering other people so that we cannot be selfish, but we can be unselfish in our love for them. That We're not going to grieve our brothers and sisters. We're not going to harm them. We're not going to leave them in danger. Just imagine here, and this is kind of a story that will help us, I guess, determine or kind of see what Paul is saying. Imagine two Christians from this Roman church that Paul is writing to. There's a Gentile Christian named Julius and a Jewish Christian named Solomon. Now Solomon, the Jewish Christian, goes over to Julius's house for dinner, and Julius sets before Solomon a full back or full rack, excuse me, a baby back ribs, some shrimp wrapped with bacon. Now Solomon, because of his Jewish upbringing, is mortified. He says, "How in the world can you do this?" How can you eat this? It's unclean. And besides, this meat was in the pagan temple. And to do this would make us to be a part of pagan false worship. This is going on in Solomon's heart. Julius, on the other hand, says, come on, Solomon. That's, that's old school. We can eat whatever we want to. Don't, don't you know what Jesus said? Didn't you hear what God told Peter? Besides, have you not ever had baby back ribs? Come on, Julius, bacon will change your life. It'll change your life, Julius. Just, just take a little bit, Solomon. Take a little bit, Solomon. It'll, it'll change your life forever. So Solomon gets angry. He leaves the table. And what we have here is two brothers whose now their fellowship has been completely broken. And what Paul is getting us to see here is, yes, Julius was right. He is a strong believer. He gets that nothing is unclean in and of itself, that you can have Baby back ribs when you want to, and praise God, you can indulge in bacon. Praise God for, amen, praise God for bacon. But if your brother is grieved by what you eat, then you aren't walking in love. You're causing them to stumble. And the point is this, we must emphasize love over our personal freedoms. What Paul is saying is this, in the body of Christ, there's no room to say, well, I don't care about them, they can just get over it. There's no room for that if you're causing them to stumble. What Paul is saying is prioritize fellowship, Christian fellowship, over freedom. For ultimately, I think we stumble over pebbles, never over mountains. Meaning we don't stumble over the big stuff, we stumble over the small stuff. And in stumbling, what we do, if we're not careful, we're walking a path and we're basically taking banana pills and putting them down so that people who follow us will slip and fall all over them without even thinking about what we're doing. Paul continues and says, For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you're no longer walking in love. You're no longer walking in unconditional, sacrificial love, which refers to the way that, or who God is as love, and it refers to the way that God loves 
us. Agape love. It doesn't, agape love does not use the world's criteria for love. Think about how the world views love. The world views love based, based on attractiveness, based on emotions, based on sentimentality, or based on advantage. If I can get an advantage from you, then I love you. And as soon as that advantage is gone, I no longer love you. And we can, if we're not careful, we can easily fall into that trap. Just think about the marriages that have ended with the words, I don't love you anymore. As if, as if love is just something that you fall in and out of. Aren't you so thankful, brothers and sisters, that God does not fall in and out of love with you? Our God doesn't fall in and out of love with us. Our God has decisively set his love upon us because we need his love. And he doesn't withhold it from us when we act terrible. He doesn't take it away from us when we are no longer advantageous to him. He keeps loving us and it never, ever stops. And what Paul is saying here is to make a decision to love one another, to put love over your own freedoms. Paul is saying, listen, yeah, freedom is something you can live out. You can take your freedoms and you can live them out, but Christian freedoms are also something you can lay down. Meaning if there's a chance of it harming a brother and sister, you can lay it down. And if you can't lay it down, then it's no longer a freedom for you. It is an enslavement for you. So if you have a freedom that you can't lay down, it's no longer a freedom. It is something that has taken control of your life. We must be careful to make sure to know the difference. I think of the words of a commentator who said, no belief about anything is worthy of throwing a wrecking ball through Christian fellowship. No belief about anything is worthy of throwing a wrecking ball through Christian fellowship. And then Paul continues and says this, by what you eat, do not destroy the one from whom Christ died. Let me just lay a, a clear foundation for you. Maybe you need to hear this today. Jesus did not die for bacon and wine. Jesus died for people. Let me say it again. Jesus did not die for bacon and wine. He died for people. Therefore, what Paul is saying is don't do anything that would intentionally cause someone who is following the course behind you to get off course. Don't do anything that would allow someone to stop pursuing Jesus. Did Jesus love that person enough to die for them? Then should we not love them enough to not want to wound them? Did Christ die to save them? Then we should not do anything to destroy them. Which is what Paul says, by what you eat, don't destroy the one whom Christ died. What does that mean to destroy? Now, some have said that means you lose your salvation. Now, I don't think that's what Paul means, first of all, because of what Paul previously wrote in Romans 8. Also, because Paul would be saying then that you eat something, and what you eat causes them to lose their salvation. So I do something, and they lose. Doesn't seem the biblical picture here, that I can lose your salvation. So it doesn't seem to be biblical. What Paul seems to be saying is this. I, as a strong believer, can cause a weak believer to either slow down in their maturing or to even stop maturing in their faith altogether. By what I do. There are certain freedoms, brothers and sisters, we should be willing to give up for a time or even forever for the sake of brothers and sisters coming to Christ. And I know the thought in our mind is this, well, why should I have to give up something for the sake of someone else who is weak? 
And that's our thought. Let me just say this. How selfish are we? How selfish are we? Like your love would never cause you to sacrifice when we follow the one who sacrificed for us? Like your love should never sacrifice anything? I mean, does that sound biblical? Does that sound Christ-like in any way? Just imagine that we're on a boat together. And this is going to be a stretch, but just imagine that we're on a boat together on our way to heaven. The Spirit of God is giving us the wind, the strength to honor him on the boat. And we're, praise God, are able to take more people into the boat as we go. But as we're doing this, we hear a warning. Don't throw anyone overboard. Don't leave anyone uncared for. Don't leave anyone alone. Brothers and sisters, we need one another. We need to keep people from jumping ship. And, God forbid, may we never throw anyone overboard. May we never throw anyone overboard. But here's the point. Many churches, in the way that they have acted, they have thrown people overboard. And not only have they thrown people overboard, they haven't looked back. They just throw them overboard and just keep going. Unfortunately, they're not heading to heaven. They're just going around in a circle. But the, the picture is they're no longer thinking about the brother or the sister in Christ. Listen, we need to remember who we're dealing with. And what I mean by that is this. We are dealing with brothers and sisters who Christ died for. Brothers and sisters who Christ died for. So we honor them. We don't despise them. We serve them and we don't harm them. And we allow them to walk faithfully, hopefully never causing them to stumble. So protect one another from stumbling. But then second, the second cause is this. Prioritize the benefits of the kingdom. So prioritize the benefits of the kingdom. Look at verses 16 through 18 here. It says, Do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So the kingdom of God is about righteousness. It's about peace. It's about life in the Holy Spirit. And because we are righteous in Christ, we now live righteous lives. We now live peaceful lives. We now live joyful lives. This is the only time in all of the book of Romans that Paul uses the phrase kingdom of God. Now what we know is the kingdom of God has been defined as the divine rule of God in the affairs of man. So the kingdom of God is God's divine rule, meaning he's ruling in our affairs, in our lives. So if you are a child of God, you are in the kingdom of God. And the kingdom of God is not just it's not about food, and it's not about drink, and it's not about fighting over non-essential things. It's about the kingdom. The kingdom of God is about the king. It's about honoring the king, rejoicing in the king. And think about it. Think with me through this. Where we live has a way of making certain demands on how we live. So where we live has a certain way of making demands on how we live. Now, if you live in the woods um, on five acres with nobody around you, you can do whatever you want to do. You can live however you want to live. But like for me, my neighborhood, I'm not even going to look at Brother Curtis. I'm not, but to my neighbor, so we have HOA dues that must be paid, just general rules and some general rules of courtesy. Our garbage collector comes every Thursday morning-ish, sometimes late Thursday. But for the sake of my neighbors, I don't put my trash outside on Monday. 
for them to come on Thursday. No, I put my trash outside on Wednesday evening. And then in order to not get a letter from Dave, I, I make sure that my trash can is up by Thursday night. You know, it's how we, we live. We have kids in our neighborhood, so I drive slow so that if a wayward ball comes out of nowhere to the street and the kid goes running, I'm going to be able to stop in that way. Where we live has a way of making demands on how we live. And it's important to know that according to Colossians 1, verse 13, that we have entered into the kingdom of the Son. So we live in his neighborhood. And living in his neighborhood should transform how we live. We're living for him. So we're living, and in living, we're pursuing righteousness and peace and joy. And just think about this. If we're pursuing righteousness, we're pursuing righteousness, we're pursuing peace, being peacemakers, living at peace with him and with others, we're pursuing and manifesting joy. Would you not want to live in that neighborhood? Who wouldn't want to live in that neighborhood? Who wouldn't want to be there. I know some of you right now, you're going straight to Mr. Rogers' neighborhood and all that, but who wouldn't want to be there? Welcome to the neighborhood. Come on in, but we prioritize. Here's the deal. Sometimes if we're not careful, here's what we've done. We have taken non-essentials. We have taken the food and drink, and we have placed it here, and we have placed the kingdom of God here. Instead of understanding that it's supposed to be the kingdom of God and then everything else. The kingdom of God is of utmost importance because the king is of utmost importance. So prioritize the benefits of the kingdom, which leads us to the third call, pursue mutual growth within the body. Pursue mutual growth within the body. And this is going to continue to get tough, but listen to verse 19. So then let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual building or upbuilding. Instead of destroying the work of other brothers and sisters, we're to build them up. Even, hear this, even putting their needs above our wants. I want to do this, but they need this, so I put their needs above my wants. Paul is saying, do not for the sake of food or anything else destroy what God is doing in them. In fact, in verse 13 and verse 21, Paul says our behavior will be a stumbling block or can be a stumbling block to another Christian. In verse 15, Paul says that our brother may be grieved or we might even destroy them altogether. In verse 20, God's work may be destroyed in someone's life. Is your freedom really worth all of that? Is your freedom, living out your freedom, is it really worth destroying the work of God in someone else's life? Must we demand our own way? The point is, don't do things that could lead people to a habit of looking away from Jesus. Now, some of you have probably heard me mention Charles Spurgeon. He's the famous pastor from London in the 19th century. He was actually called the Prince of Preachers. Some of you maybe even know that he was very fond of cigars. Now, in the time that he lived, many people viewed it as a questionable practice, and yet he told someone who questioned his smoking of cigars, he said, I never smoke to excess. And when they asked him, what does excess mean? He says, two cigars at a time. So I, I never do more than two cigars at a time. So we kind of know that story. But what we don't know is that Spurgeon actually gave up 
smoking cigars later on in his life. He was walking through the streets of London, and one day he saw an advertisement in a store that said, we sell the cigars that the Prince of Preachers smoke. It so grieved his heart because he thought, what I do could, could have an impact on someone who's following me, who's following Christ. It could have an impact, and so he gave up the habit. Now, let me just say this. What a sign of maturity for anyone who's willing to put other people's spiritual well-being above their own spiritual freedoms. Now, what I'm not saying, I'm not saying if you smoke cigars, if you drink wine, if you do this, that you have to give those things up. Now, there might be times where you should if you're around a weaker brother and sister, but let me also say this. If God tells you to, then yes. If God tells you to, then by all means. But we have to understand, listen, there are freedoms that we have that we are able to enjoy that God might say, because of the person that I have placed in your life, give it up for a while. Give it up when you're with them. Don't be a stumbling block. And I know that, again, I can just look at your faces. Your faces are like, no, I'm not. Again, how selfish are we? How selfish are we to look in the face of Jesus who gave it all up for us to say, I would never give that up for anybody. I'm going to just throw the words of Warren Wearsby on the screen. He says this, both the strong and the weak believer need to grow. The strong believer needs to grow in love. The weak believer needs to grow in knowledge. So long as a brother is weak in faith, we must lovingly deal with him in his immaturity. But if we really love him, we will help him to grow. The weak must learn from the strong, and the strong must love the weak. The result will be peace and maturity to the glory of God. Pursue mutual growth within the body. We want to see other people grow in their faith, which leads us to the last calling of love, which is this. Preserve a clear conscience. Preserve a clear conscience. In verse 22, Paul says, The faith that you have keep between yourself and God. So there are certain truths that all Christians must accept because we call them essential. They are absolutely determinant in our salvation, believing those. And there are other beliefs, we call them non-essential, that we are able to agree to disagree on those, but it doesn't affect our fellowship at all. But what Paul says here is if you have a sincere conviction from God in any matter, Paul basically says this, keep it between you and God. Don't try to force it on someone else. If you have a conviction, I can never do that, don't hold that conviction on everybody else. Like, how dare you do that? Like, I could, I could never do that. How can you do that? Let me give you some sound words of advice. No Christian can borrow another Christian's convictions. No Christian can borrow another Christian's convictions because let me tell you very clearly, God hasn't called you to be them. God's called you to be you. And if everybody's trying to pursue to be somebody else, then we're failing to be what God made us to be. And we are, if we're not careful, hurting the impact that God has placed around us, the people that we're able to impact through the life that God has given to us. Paul goes on to say this, Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself or what he approves. But whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats, because the eating is not from faith. For whatever does not proceed from faith is what? It's sin. If it doesn't come from faith, it's sin. So the things that the Bible condemns are always wrong. The things that the Bible approves are always right. 
But the things that the Bible don't approve or condemn are open for personal convictions, which are based on our consciences. Now, let me say this. I, and of course, Paul is in no way saying that sin is relative. So Paul is saying, he's not saying sin is relative. What the Bible says is sin is sin for you and it's sin for me. So what the Bible calls sin is sin for all of us. We can never walk through life and say, well, yeah, I know the Bible says don't do that. Thou shalt not, but I don't feel convicted about it. Then you're a fool. If the Bible says no, we, we don't get an exception. So it's not like that applies to everybody else but me. No, that's not the way it works. But even though sin isn't relative, let me say this. There are certain things that are sinful for me to do that might not be sinful for you to do because you are able to do them in faith and I can't. And if I can't do it in faith, then it is a sin for me. And so what Paul is saying is that when we dishonor our conscience, we dishonor God. And when we honor our conscience, we honor him. I want to end today with a story of, of Eric Liddell. I've used him before, but he was, for months, he was a man who trained as a track athlete for the purpose of winning the 100-meter race in the Olympics of 1924. Sports writers from all over the country predicted that he was going to win the 100 meters easily. And then Liddell learned that the 100-meter race was scheduled on a Sunday. Now, this posed a problem for Liddell because he believed that he was not allowed to do anything on the Lord's Day. So he refused. He dropped out of the race and refused to run on the Lord's Day. Now, his fans were stunned by his refusal to run. Some who had, who had praised him previously were now calling him a fool. And the press laughed at him because he wouldn't run on, on Sunday. In the midst of this process, a runner who was running in the 400-meter race dropped out, and there was no alternate to take his place. Because this race was scheduled on a day not on the Lord's Day, on a weekday, Eric offered to fill the slot even though it was four times longer than what he had trained for. He had never trained for the 400. So on July 11, 1924, Eric Liddell took his place at the starting line of the 400-meter race in the Paris Olympic Games. In his pocket was a handwritten note sent from the team trainer that said this, In the old book, it says, He who honors me, I will honor. He who honors me, I will honor. Liddell ran the race, and not only did he win the gold medal, he set a world record for a race he had never trained for. God honored him, and God honored his conviction, and God continually honored his non-compromising spirit. Some 21 years later, Liddell was a, a missionary in China. And in 1945, he died in a war camp as uncompromising in his faith as ever. God honors those who honor him. Even when it looks different than, than what we think. But let's hear those words again. Whatever is not of faith is sin. So whatever is not of faith is sin. So how do we avoid sin in our lives? Here's the deal. How do you avoid sin? You live by faith. Live by faith. We walk by faith, not by sight. We think by faith. We talk by faith. We reason and make decisions by faith. We grow in faith. We take captive our thoughts so that everything in our lives is flowing from our faith in him. We trust in God. We trust in his goodness. We trust in his word. We trust in his ways. And we understand that all of our desires point to 
him and flow from him and are to him. And we understand that the object of our faith is always him. For if our faith doesn't have him as the object, then our faith is in vain. But if our faith has him as the object, then we are pleasing to him always. And everything that we, we do. So all of our actions are to flow from love for God. So God has loved us first. We love him. We please him always. And then we love others. And we're willing to lay down our freedoms at times for the sake of not harming our brothers and sisters because Christ died for them. And we don't want to destroy what God's doing in their lives. And that sounds so insane from a worldly perspective, right? Or from a selfish mind, that sounds so insane. You're asking me to give up for them? Why don't they just get stronger? Like Why, why don't they just have what I have? And why don't they just do what I, I do? Well, maybe one day they will. But you've got to walk with them. And you've, you've got to talk with them. And you've got to show them the picture of who God is. And what God is calling all of us to do. And maybe those convictions for them will never change. But guess what? They can... By their convictions, honor God, and God will honor them. Owe to God that God would allow us to hear love's greater calling and that we would love others as Christ has loved us. I'm going to ask you to go ahead and stand, and we're going to pray and call the, the band down as we enter into this time of invitation and consecration. And let's, let's pray um, in this moment. So, Father, we, we just approach you, Lord. thinking about this tough and difficult passage of Scripture, and Lord, it's, it's hard. There's nothing easy about what we just read, and there's definitely nothing easy about laying down our freedoms and putting other people's needs above ours. There's nothing easy about sacrificial love. And yet, Lord, your word says that you demonstrated and proved your love for us, that while we were still in our sin, Christ died, sacrificed himself for us. Lord, just help us to walk in the freedoms that we have in you, to praise you for the freedoms that we have, that the Son has set us free and we are free indeed. But also, Lord, to to walk with other brothers and sisters, to fulfill the calling that we have, Lord, to love you with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength and love our neighbor as ourselves, and help us to not let great distractions stand in the way of the great commandment and the great commission. So just finish this time, Lord, in a way that brings you glory. Maybe it's pointing us to a weaker brother or sister that we need to, to get in their lives love them maybe it's Lord a, a, a freedom that without a doubt you're calling us to lay down for the sake of that brother and sister help us to be able to do whatever it is that you're calling us to do Lord for your glory we just pray these things in Jesus name